0: This is Rev. Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Camp Brown, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. If you turn on your radio, TV, the internet, or pick up a paper at certain times, most any week, You'll be able to find some 21st century prophet who claims that he's able or she's able to interpret the scripture in such a wonderful, superb way that this person can foretell the time when the world is coming to an end. Well, I have never been quite that smart. The Bible teaches that only God in heaven knows the day and the hour. The Apostle Paul did not claim to know the time either. But he did have something to say about conditions in the last days writing to timothy paul described these conditions 2nd timothy chapter 3 don't be naive timothy there are difficult times ahead as the end approaches people are going to be self-absorbed money-hungry self-promoting stuck up profane Contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog eat dog, unbending, slanderers, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, addicted to lust, and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they're animals. Stay clear of these people." Wow, Paul had some strong words to say to young Timothy. This is from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message. And then Paul, writing to the Christians at Ephesus, says to them in Ephesians chapter five, "'So watch your step, use your head, "'make the most of every chance you get. "'These are desperate times.'" are these words for us today? We'd better believe it. Paul's words are just as relevant for us as they were for those to whom he wrote years ago. Yes, there are difficult times ahead. These are desperate times. Now, if anyone thinks I'm just shouting words of alarm, let me tell you about a little experiment I ran just these past few days. In about a period of a week or so, I jotted down some of the recent news items. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna read the entire items, but you know some of these things that have happened. You're quite aware, all of us in America and mm-hmm. elsewhere, that mm-hmm. there was a shooting of an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, claimed the lives of 19 children and two teachers. Mm-hmm. But since this past Memorial Day weekend, Spanning Saturday, Sunday, and the federal holiday on Monday, there have been at least 11 additional mass shootings. That same report said that at least 14 mass shootings have taken place across the United States since this past Tuesday, the day after Memorial Day, all the way from California to Arizona and Tennessee, everywhere. Another news item, burglars have stolen $2 million in gold tabernacle decorated items, a a tabernacle decorated with jewels from a Catholic church in Brooklyn. You know also that there are some other items. Uh, It's amazing to know that uh, there have been nine people killed, 60 injured in mass shootings in the United States in just these past years. Uh, Weeks, actually, days. Another news item, a man dressed as a woman smeared white cake frosting on the glass in front of the famous Mona Lisa painting in the Louvre in in Paris. And these are just some of the things that that have claimed our attention in the news. One of our senators (laughs) made the statement that he has never been so unnerved about the state of the world as he is right now. Now can anyone who's a serious thinker doubt the truth of the Scripture, which tells us that these are difficult days and desperate times? I sometimes wonder what some of the Bible writers would think if they could step into our culture and see some of the conditions that prevail in our society today. Well, in spite of all this, there are those who keep saying that the world is getting better and better. We are on a moral escalator, and in time our problems will all be solved. I'm not trying to be a pessimist, but I must say that I cannot agree with that line of thinking. I don't think we have as many optimists around today as we used to have. It's hard to find a real optimist. I know you've probably heard a thousand definitions of the difference between an optimist and a pessimist. Somebody said an optimist counts his blessings. A pessimist discounts his. Another definition of the difference between these two, a pessimist is a person who, when smelling flowers, looks around for the funeral. I once heard a rather confusing definition of a pessimistic farmer. He said, crops wasn't as good as I expected they'd be this year, but then I didn't expect they would be either, or well, whatever that means. <laughs> Somebody wrote a few lines of satire on people who always see the bad side of life. My granddad, viewing earth's worn cogs, said things are going to the dogs. His granddad in his house of logs said things were going to the dogs. His granddad in the Flemish bogs said things were going to the dogs. His granddad in his old skin togs, said things were going to the dogs, and the person who wrote those lines had a concluding two lines saying, "There's one thing that I have to state: the dogs have had a good long wait." Now, if you suggested to be, to one of those early Christians and back in Bible days that their world was getting better and better, they would not have agreed with you. To them the days were evil. In fact, in the Old Testament, we have the idea set forth that the evil days are the days of old age. You remember the verse from Ecclesiastes 12, 1? Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Also in Ecclesiastes 12, from the message, we have these words. Honor your creator while you're still young, before the years take their toll and your vigor wanes, before your vision dims and the world blurs, and the winter years keep you close to the fire. In old age, your body no longer serves you well. Muscles slacken, grip weakens, joints stiffen, The shades are pulled down on the world. You can't come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. The hum of the household fades away. You're awakened now by birdsong. Hikes to the mountains are a thing of the past. Even a stroll down the road has its terrors. Your hair turns apple blossom white, adorning a fragile and impotent matchstick body. Yes, you're well on your way to eternal rest while your friends make plans for your funeral. Life, lovely while it lasts, is soon over. Life as we know it, precious and beautiful, ends. The body is put back in the same ground it came from. The Spirit returns to God who first breathed it. I've read from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the first seven verses. When John Quincy Adams was 80 years old, one of our former presidents years ago, somebody met him one morning and asked, how's John Quincy Adams this morning? He replied in classic form with these words, John Quincy Adams himself is very well, thank you. Now the house he lives in is sadly dilapidated. It totters on its foundations, the walls are badly shattered and the roof is worn. The building trembled with every wind, and I think John Quincy Adams will have to move out of it before long, but he himself is quite well, thank you." There was a preacher who quoted those words on a radio broadcast years ago, and later he received a letter from a very elderly lady. Her statement was almost better than that of John Quincy Adams. What she had to say was this. This is an old lady who's writing to you. At least the house I live in is 82 years old. Considering its age, the house is in fairly good repair. I don't think it looks quite as good as it did 50 years ago. I've neglected to keep it painted, as so many women in this generation do. To tell the truth, I've been spending my time on interior decoration. The windows I look out of are fairly clear, and I'm so glad to tell you that I have a reliable tenant in the upper story. This woman certainly did not think of old age as being so terrible, did she? I believe what Paul is trying to tell us in our scripture for today is that the times in which we live are very difficult. The world is very hard. And many things in our world are not right. But the answer for the Christian is that we must live in the world, but we must not be of the world. And there's a big difference in those two. It's much like a boat in the ocean. A boat is built for the ocean and the boat should be in the water. But trouble comes when the water gets into the boat. Somebody put it in lines of a little poem, all the water in the world, however hard it tried, could never, never sink a ship unless it got inside. And all the evil in the world, the blackest kind of sin, can never hurt you one least bit unless you let it in. Yes, the Christian should be in this world, but the world should not be in the Christian well what happens how does that happen the, the world gets in the christian when we begin to do just like all the other people do when we forsake our ideals when we stop standing up for our beliefs, when our habits are just like the habits of everybody else and so paul tells us in the bible to be careful look carefully how you walk the days in which we live are evil but there is a promise of a reward for the faithful and that promise is from god himself in the last book of the bible revelation chapter 2 verse 10 the scripture says fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer be thou faithful unto death and i will give thee a crown of life i want to close by telling you a well, really a rather lengthy story related by Sheila Finley. This is her story. The passengers on the bus watched sympathetically as an attractive young woman with a white cane made her way carefully up the steps to the bus. She paid the driver, and using her hands to feel the location of the seats, she walked down the aisle and found a seat that he had told her was empty. Then she settled in, placed her briefcase on her lap, and rested her white cane against her leg. It had been a year since Susan, 34, became blind. Due to a medical misdiagnosis, she had been rendered sightless, and she was suddenly thrown into a world of darkness, anger, frustration, and self-pity. Once she was a fiercely independent woman, but Susan now felt condemned by this terrible twist of fate to become a powerless, helpless burden on everybody around her. "'How could this have happened to me?' she would plead. Her heart nodded with anger. But no matter how much she cried or ranted or prayed, she knew the painful truth. Her sight was never going to return. A cloud of depression hung over Susan's once optimistic spirit. Just getting through each day was an exercise in frustration and exhaustion. All she had to cling to was her husband, Mark. Mark was an Air Force officer and he loved Susan, his wife, with all of his heart. When she first lost her sight, he watched her sink into despair and he was determined to help his wife gain the strength and confidence she needed to become independent once again. Mark's military background had trained him well to deal with sensitive situations, and yet he knew this was the most difficult battle he would ever face. Finally, Susan felt ready to return to her job. But how would she get there? She used to take the bus but she was now too frightened to get around in the city by herself. Mark volunteered to drive her to work each day, even though they worked at opposite ends of the city. At first, this comforted Susan, and it also fulfilled Mark's need to protect his sightless wife, who was so insecure about performing even the slightest task. Soon, however, Mark realized that this arrangement was not really working. It was hectic and costly. Susan is going to have to start taking the bus again, he admitted to himself. But just the thought of mentioning that to her made him cringe. She was still so fragile, so angry. How would she react? Just as Mark predicted, Susan was horrified at the idea of taking the bus again. I'm blind, she responded bitterly. How am I supposed to know where I'm going? Mark, I feel like you are abandoning me. Mark's heart broke to hear those words, but he knew what had to be done. He promised Susan that each morning and evening he would ride the bus with her for as long as it took until she got used to it. And that is exactly what happened. For two solid weeks. Mark, military uniform and all, accompanied Susan to and from her work every day. He taught her how to rely on her other senses, specifically her hearing, to determine where she was and how to adapt to her new environment. He helped her befriend the bus drivers who could watch out for her and save her a seat. Mark made her laugh even on those not-so-good days when she would trip while exiting the bus or when she would drop her briefcase. Each morning, they made the journey together, and then Mark would take a cab back to his office. Although this routine was even more costly and exhausting than the previous one, Mark knew it was only a matter of time before Susan would be able to ride the bus on her own. He believed in her, and the Susan he used to know before she had lost her sight, the one who was not afraid of any challenge and who would never ever quit. Finally, Susan decided she was now ready to try that trip on her own. Monday morning arrived and before she left, she threw her arms around her husband, Mark, her temporary bus riding companion, her husband, her best friend. Her eyes filled with tears of gratitude for his loyalty, his patience, and his love for his wife. She said goodbye. And for the first time, they went their separate ways. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, each day on, she went perfectly on her own. And Susan had never felt better. She was doing it, actually. She was going to work all by herself. On Friday morning, Susan took the bus to work as usual. As she was getting off the bus, the driver said to her, boy, I sure envy you. Susan wasn't sure if the driver was speaking to her or maybe somebody else. After all, who on earth would ever envy a blind woman who had struggled just to find the courage to live for the past year? So curious, she asked the driver, why you say you envy me? The driver responded, it must feel real good to be taken care of and protected like you are. Susan had no idea what the driver was talking about. And so she asked again, what do you mean? The driver answered, you know, every morning for the past week, a very fine looking gentleman in a military uniform has been standing across the corner, watching you get off the bus. He makes sure you cross the street safely, and he watches you until you enter your office building. Then he blows you a kiss, he gives you a little salute, and he walks away. The driver said, you sure are one lucky lady. Tears of happiness poured down Susan's cheeks. Although she couldn't physically see him, she had always felt Mark's presence. Yes, she was not just lucky, she was blessed. Her husband had given her a gift more powerful than sight, a gift she did not need to see to believe, the gift of love that can bring light where there had been darkness. My friends, What does this story have to say to you and me today? Let me put it in one sentence. God watches over you and me in the same way, because we may not know he is present. We may not be able to see God's face, but he is there nonetheless. Yes, God loves you, even when you're not looking. Oh God, we have no words to thank you for your continued watch care over each of us. Even in difficult days, you're there and we thank you for your presence through your Holy Spirit as Jesus Christ taught us so wonderfully that he is always with us. It's in his name that we offer our prayer. Amen.